We're going to find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3 again, as we journey on through Colossians here. Sometimes you just get one of those sermons that you're really excited to speak on, and it's like one of your favorite passages. Today is not this week. That is, that is not the one I'm looking forward to today. The, today we're going to talk about sin and wrath, things like that, so it's, it's a tricky one. I ask for your prayer. In fact, I'd like to open up a prayer before we start. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done in our lives and in our hearts. Thank you for Jesus, of course, because he is the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great value. I pray that today, Father, as we focus upon um, a tough and awkward topic, as we really think about this today, that you'd help us, help us in our minds and our hearts to receive this as a gift of love. Because every time you teach us, every time you show us something, it is a gift of love and you're trying to Use it for our benefit. So I pray that you'd bless this sermon as I speak. Let only your words go forth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So yes, the title of our lesson today is Inconsistent Treasures, Killing the Sin Within. We're going to talk about sin today. Always a little hard and awkward to talk about, but we have to for a couple reasons. It's in Colossians. There's no way to avoid it. And it's going to be helpful, I hope, for all of us seeking to treasure Jesus more. So we'll get to the text here in a little bit. Have you ever had a regret? Come on, right? Ever done something stupid? <laughs> I'm about to be very vulnerable with you all. So I hope you don't, <laughs> I hope you don't view me weirdly after this. Because I've done some dumb things in my life, and I'd like to bare my soul a little bit of things I've done that I regret, things that are just flat-out stupid. Here's one. Uh, it's beach time, right? A lot of people are trying to get to the beach before fall, and my parents are some of those people too, and I think Dan and uh, Jerry went recently, and so people are going to the beach, things like that. Well, one time, my family went to the beach, and I went with them, and uh, I was outside a lot throughout the summer, so I had, I had developed at least an off-white tan, which is pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> But when you go to the shore, you want to get a really good tan, right? I mean, you want to come back dark and people, you know, go, wow, I wish I was like as dark as you are. You look great. So I noticed something that I played basketball a lot throughout the summer. And when I got to the beach, I noticed that I had a little bit of a tan line from my socks. Yeah. <laughs> you guys ever had one of those? Those are weird. Um, in fact, I think my sister said I went into the water one time and Christy said, wait a minute, Todd, I think you should take your socks off before you go into the beach. And I said, they are off. And she's like, huh. So I had really white feet, and I had my off-white legs, and I wanted those things to match. <laughs> this is really dumb. So we had one of those umbrellas you sit under at the beach, right? And, uh, you know, you don't want to be in the direct sun. But I wanted to get some sunlight on my feet because they were really white. So I sat under the umbrella, but I stuck my feet out in the direct sun to hopefully match things up a little bit, right? It makes logical sense, at least, in your mind going, okay, they're white, his legs are dark, stick the legs out in the sun, and they'll both match. Well, that was the idea. I was young enough to do, be really dumb still. Um, how do you think that went? Pasty, pale, white feet in the direct sunlight for a couple hours. Yeah. Lobster red. I mean, lobster red. And you don't notice when you're in the sun, right? It's just like, oh, yeah, they're looking pretty good. Well, I got back to the, uh, the hotel or whatever we were, and I was in excruciating pain. Every time I tried to put a sock or a shoe or something touched my foot, I was like, ouch. And it was only then that I realized how dumb that really was. And now I didn't, I didn't have a tan. I had red. And eventually the red mercifully peeled off and went right back to white. So that was dumb. I definitely regret doing that. A couple more to share here with you. And uh, When I worked at the bank in my uh, mid-20s, uh, the bank that we worked at was kind of like, it was either really busy or really slow. There was nothing in between. It was no, like, nothing like moderately busy. You either had your seasons of really busy or your seasons of really slow, and that could be in one day. So we got these periods a lot where it was really slow, and we had to fill the time. Well, myself and a couple other guys came up with this idea of having a hot pepper challenge. <laughs> Anybody like spicy food? Spicy food fans out there? No? One person? Good. Uh, <laughs> Well, even if you like spicy food, this is a bad idea, okay? So what we did is we had this hot pepper challenge, and we were, we were taking the peppers. We were starting from, like, the weakest and going up to the strongest, or however strong we could take. Well, I wasn't really great at this. 
Um, I couldn't take a lot of heat, so I was eating, I could do a jalapeno, and that's about the hottest I could go. But then I was finding myself kind of lagging behind the others in the standings. Yes, weirdly enough. And so I had to sort of get my score up. Well, they brought in the one-day habanero peppers. Anybody ever have one of those? But in order to catch up, this one guy said I was going to have to eat the entire habanero pepper at once in my mouth. So you can imagine how that went. What is with me and hot things? So I took the habanero out, not expect. I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be hot. It's going to be a little painful. But how bad can it be, right? It's always the last famous saying people say before something really dumb happens. So I take the habanero out, and I put it directly in my mouth, chew it, swallow it, no issue. I'm like, this is, are you kidding me? This isn't a big deal at all. You know, why are you guys griping about this thing? Ten seconds go by, and I, I don't know what, it was like an out-of-a-body experience. It, that's all I can explain it. I was getting lightheaded. I was burping a lot. Kind of weird. But I was pacing back and forth. I thought I was going to pass out. It was the worst thing I'd ever done. It was worse than the feet. I'm eating this habanero pepper, and I thought, how long is this going to last? This is horrible. So I took the lead for like one day and uh, really, really paid for it. So that was something really dumb as well. Wow, these are making me look really, really dumb. The more I share, the more I realize I'm kind of an idiot. Um, anyway, <laughs> is there a right way to light a gas grill manually? Because I know there's a wrong way. <laughs> What's that? Well, the lid was off. I had the lid off. So this was only like a year ago, guys. And <laughs> I don't get an excuse for this one for being young. So the, the thing went out, you know, and I wanted to relight the gas grill. And I, how do you do it? I, I think you just get the candle or whatever near the lighter. At least that's what I thought. Well, when I happened, when I happened, I had the little lighter stick. You know those things are. You press the button and the flame comes out. And I put it close. But the only problem is, is the gas had been running for a while. And forgot that little detail. Burned my arm hair completely off. Singed. Gone. And I was like, I, like gone, guys. No arm hair whatsoever. See, it's returned. But uh, gone. And I was like, I was like looking down going, I got incredibly lucky. You know, because I just tried to light a, man, a grill manually with no knowledge of how to light a manual grill. So I came in and Janine was like, what is that smell? And I'm like, I don't know. What are you cooking? What'd you burn? Obviously, it was me. And I'll share one last story here. Um, I actually have the, the scar to prove this one. Um, when I was early in ministry, we did this missions trip down to Virginia. Anyone been to Virginia? Roanoke, Virginia? Okay, I think Liz is close to that right now. But uh, we were down in Roanoke, Virginia. And we were helping this ministry, this street ministry, help out with their building. And so they were going to kind of like redo their building. So they were basically demolishing the entire thing, and they were going to build it back up. Well, we were there to serve and do whatever it was necessary, and I was one of the leaders of this ministry. Um, so they were going to do it a, a demo day or a demo couple days where they'd go in and smash everything up and take it out so they could put the new stuff in. Well, I didn't have any experience with this kind of stuff. I'm a guy who lights my grill manually, you know. This isn't going to go well, and it didn't go well. Um, one of the guys who actually did know what he was doing was there, and he was having trouble removing a mirror from its place, like he couldn't get it out, it was kind of jammed, so he asked me to come help. He said, hey, Todd, can you come help me with this mirror? I can't get it unstuck. And I was like, yeah, what, no problem. What do you want me to do? He goes, just hold it. I was like, I think I can do that. I can hold a mirror. How do you hold a mirror when you're trying to unstick it from something? Not like this. I have the mirror like this, okay? And this guy is trying to unwedge the mirror from its place to get it out. Well, he put a lot of strength into that mirror, and the mirror broke in half. And I'm holding it like this, whoosh, right on my wrist. I have the scar to show it. Right there. Yeah. Not a cutter. Uh, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> and I had gloves on, but it, it hit below the gloves, and it was a really scary thing. It didn't hit the artery. Okay, it's not one of those really scary, scary things. But uh, gashed my wrist right open. Had to go to the ER and stuff like that, and uh, realized that's probably not what I should have done. Holding the mirror, exposed my wrist like that. So. Regrets. Okay, maybe you guys have your own. You can share them with me, and I can feel a little bit better. But we're going to talk about sin today. Sin is always a regret, a thing we regret. And I want to talk about this. Before I get into this text, I want to make this as a preface. I have to speak boldly today because the Word of God speaks boldly today. But I want you to understand I have not arrived in this. Okay, I am struggling and 
pressing on in my own Christian life. So I'm going to save some strong things because the scripture says strong things, but I want you to understand I'm with you in the boat. Okay, we're going to get there together. So let's go to the text. The text today is Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. And let's read it, and then we'll recap a little bit where we're coming from. This is what Paul says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, the title of this lesson today is going to be Inconsistent Treasures and Killing the Sin Within. If you remember last week, we came from the idea of our hidden life being in Christ, and that's what Colossians 3, 1 to 4 really talked about, is that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Not part of our life, but our entire life is hidden with Christ. So Paul has set the stage to basically say, if you're a Christian, if you're a new creature, your life is Christ. And now what he's going to say is set off, put off the things that no longer make any sense now that your life is Christ. So as a preface for this passage, as we talked about last week, if you're a Christian and a citizen of heaven, thanks purely to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then you must have new desires, new ambitions, and new treasures. Just makes sense. This also means that you will now understand that the earthly treasures, that obviously are sins in this passage, the, sin, the sins that you used to live for are worthless and deadly and cannot be a part of your life any longer. We'll talk about why that is. But if you're a Christian and an earthly, excuse me, a heavenly citizen, then all sins have to go. We'll talk about that today. And Paul wants us draped in new heavenly garments, okay, which means treasures, new treasures. But in order to put these things on, we first have to undress the old, putrid, God-hating garments. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In order to put on, we've got to put off so that we can put them on. In fact, they have to be killed. That's the word Paul is going to use because they're like weeds. You guys ever try to get weeds out of your lawn, right? It's kind of a task. You can't just trim them. You know, trimming weeds mean they're still there and they can come back anytime and take over your garden. Well, these spiritual gardens that we have, we need to be weed-free in order that Christ can have full dominion of our spiritual garden, our spiritual lives. So, today we're going to seek to kill some weeds, meaning sins. Sins is going to be the topic today, but we're going to circle back to treasure, okay? We're going to talk about sin and circle back to treasure because I think the whole point today is still on the idea of treasure in Christ and getting to a point where you're living correctly for your own benefit. So we need to talk about sins. So the first thing Paul says is this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he uses the word earthly. Okay, he's talking about sins, obviously, as we're going to learn here. But he says, put to death what is earthly in you, meaning not heavenly. Anything that will not go with you to the other side, put it off. Don't practice it. And the things he's going to describe as earthly are really big, bold sins. And again, I don't really want to talk about these things, but we have to. And if we don't, then we're not going to help each other. So these are the things we need to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We're going to look at each one of these closely today and, and figure out what they are and how to avoid them. But really, he's saying today that anything short of killing sin is disobedience to God. You can't just sin less. You can't just put it off somewhat, do it seldom. You have to completely mortify your sins. Sin has to die, both in desire for it and practice of it. If sin is allowed to exist, it will one day rise up like a weed and it will usurp the Lord Jesus Christ from the throne of our hearts and it will destroy us. 
And I have to use that really strong language because sin is deadly. And there's no way around it. But what is sin? What is sin? Well, really sin at its core is anything that doesn't love the Lord and doesn't love others. So that's really what sin is. If you're doing anything that cannot love the Lord and cannot love one another, it's most likely sin. And we're going to talk about some things that are definitely not involved in loving the Lord and definitely not involved in loving one another. And these are the most soul-slaying sins out there. And this is why I think Paul pauses to mention them and not just say avoid sin, but avoid sins like these. So the first one, the more, most awkward one of the list we'll talk about first is sexual immorality or fornication. You can use the word fornication there. This sin the devil has been using for generations to kill, mostly men, from my understanding, from my experience. But women are involved in that too. The devil has been using this one tool, this one weapon to slay thousands. Sexual immorality. I'm not going to really specify what sexual immorality is. I think you kind of all know what sexual immorality is. But it's fornication. It's really anything sexual outside of marriage, outside of the context of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Sexual immorality. And now we have this thing, which I'm going to call a fornication highway, that's called the Internet. Now, the Internet has a lot of good things about it, right? It's a useful tool. But it also brings a lot of sexual immorality into our minds and our hearts. And you know what I'm not going to do today? I'm not going to command that you get rid of the Internet. Because remember our talk on legalism? That's not the point. The point is for you to understand what sexual immorality is and do everything possible to avoid it. But computers, tablets, cell phones can stream fornication into our minds and hearts faster than any generation before us. So it doesn't mean sexual immorality is out there more. I mean, I think the same percentage of people are probably practicing it, but now it can get to Christians quicker more accessible, and it's killing men by the thousands. And the reason I know this is because I've worked with young adults for the last 10 years, and it would startle you to know what, how, what percentage of young men are struggling with pornography. Maybe it wouldn't shock you, but it shocked me when I found out that 95 to 99% of young men are not just falling into it every now and then, but are practicing pornography. And Paul is going to tell us today it has to die. Accountability partners have their place. They're useful things. But what Paul is going to ask of us today, require of us today, is death to the sin. Not keeping it at bay, not suppressing it, but death. Because he's going to say that if we play around with sexual immorality, it can gain momentum, it can snowball, and one day, you don't even want to say no. And it's eventually a part of your life. You practice it, and you die in it. And that's the whole plan of the devil, is to kill your soul by putting something in your way that looks pleasing and appetizing, and you practice it, and the Lord hates it, and you don't listen, and you die in it. That's his whole point. That's his whole plan. And really, the idea of sexual immorality is it cannot love anybody else. It cannot. When you're in sexual immorality, fornication, you're only pleasing your own flesh. You're not blessing anyone. You're not helping anyone. In fact, what you are doing is you're hurting people. You're hurting your spouse or your one-day spouse. You're objectifying people that God has made in his image. And you're self-focused. And Jesus told us from the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot serve two masters. If you're serving your flesh, guess who you're not serving? The Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on a very dangerous path. And sexual immorality is killing people at rapid, rampant rates. And I'd really advise you today for, to pray for the men in your life, the women too, but pray for the men specifically because I think the devil is really targeting men. Think about it this way. If he takes down the men, he takes down the families. He takes down the churches. He takes down a lot of ministries by targeting one group of people with one huge thing that all men struggle with, and that's sexual immorality. 
And it's an awkward thing to talk about, isn't it? It's not a thing I want to talk about today. This is not a desirable thing to mention here in this pulpit, but it's necessary. Because if we don't talk about it, we won't pinpoint it, we won't target it, we won't put a bullseye on it, and it may not die. And we'll just suppress it, we'll just act like it's no big deal, or try to do it less. And Paul's not, he's not going to say that. He's going to say, put it to death. Kill it. And we'll get back to that. The next thing he mentions is impurity or perversion. And really, this is the idea that it's anything against the natural laws of God, especially in the sexual arena. Still on the idea of sex here. Um, if it's not sexual fidelity to your spouse and a covenant relationship, which is marriage, it's sin and perversion. It just is. And God calls perversion, sexual perversion, an abomination. That's a strong, strong word, isn't it? In Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and Leviticus 18, 22, God makes it very, very clear he hates this kind of thing, detests it. He uses a big, strong word called abomination so that you know that. This is a big, ugly, gross sin. And God's not going to have any part of it in his kingdom. You're not taking sexual immorality into the kingdom. So if you practice it, that's a problem. It just is. And it has to be killed. So impurity, perversion, I mean, that brings up a whole different topic of what falls into that. And I could specify these things. Um, the scriptures mention some and they don't mention others. But again, we'll have to have that at another discussion. And maybe I'm sure you can think of what those things would be. But impurity and perversion. The next thing he talks about is passion and evil desires. This has to be put to death too. Well, really, these are just strong urges and cravings to do anything that God forbids. Okay, now it doesn't, it doesn't have to just be sexual any longer. Passion and evil desires are now just really strong cravings and urges to do anything that God says, no, I don't want that for you. And we crave it. We want it. That would be an evil desire, an evil desire and a passion. So anything that God says no to and we crave it is sin. It just is. So if you remember in the Garden of Eden, God said, I got one tree, one tree alone that I don't want you to eat of. One. And it's like it didn't take much for Eve to start considering how appetizing and pleasurable that fruit must be. And she had to dive into it. And that's kind of what it is today, is God gives us a lot of joy, a lot of satisfaction, a lot of eternal treasures. And we walk after the one thing he says, I forbid that. So passions and evil desires are craving and yearning for things that God says are gross and putrid in his mind. And really the idea is the desire of that thing. The desire for those things needs to die. Because if you've got this, these rivals fighting in your mind and your heart and your soul for years and years and years, it might go 50-50. God doesn't want it 50-50. He wants it dead and he wants the Lord to be the permanent Lord and master of your life. So those desires, those evil passions, got to go. And there's a way to, for them to go, and we'll talk about that. The last one he mentions here is another big one that no one really mentions today, and I feel sad for that. It's covetousness. Covetousness, which Paul calls idolatry. I mean, that's a, another really strong term, isn't it? Covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you remember idolatry from the Old Testament? When they would actually construct these golden calves and these statues and bow down and start saying to these things, thank you for getting us out of Egypt. And God looks down and finds his people praising these calves and weird false statues and says, are you kidding me? I brought you out of Egypt with my own hand. I'm the one who's been taking care of you. Now you're serving and worshiping a false god? He hated it. And so covetousness is idolatry. And the idea of covetousness is the opposite of contentment. So contentment is being content and being happy with what God has given you. Covetousness is the opposite of that. It's craving and yearning for things that God doesn't have for you. So it can be, like the Old Testament says, it can be for things that belong to another person. Or it can just be things that God just doesn't have a part of your life. And you're going to say, I'm going to get that thing no matter what, God. Regardless of what you say, I want it. Covetousness is desiring, strongly desiring, anything that the Lord doesn't have for us. When God says, be content with what you have, and we can't stop thinking and wanting something 
or someone else, and we've entered into covetousness. And this sin is called idolatry. Because when we covet, we long and crave for something besides the Lord. That's the whole idea of idolatry. Is you long for and worship and want something beyond the one who can really satisfy you. And the Lord doesn't want that for us. So these passions and these strong desires in covetousness are supposed to be reserved for the Lord alone. You are supposed to yearn and crave and long for things. They're just supposed to be things of the Lord or the Lord himself. And we've been talking about that through the entire book of Colossians is treasuring Christ. Not just not having treasures, not just being poor individuals, but living for the best treasure. And the best treasure is the Lord himself. So when we take those yearnings and those cravings and we give them to earthly things, God says, that's idolatry. I didn't make you that way. I made you to long for me. I made you to want and crave me. So when we give those cravings to another, we're worshiping a false god. And that's a strong thing to think about, isn't it? But when we do that, the one true God is righteously jealous as it would be a righteous jealous if I or my spouse felt that toward each other if someone was being unfaithful in a relationship. That would be a right kind of jealous. Because there's a covenant love there, and there's a covenant love with God that we have. So when we crave and yearn for things that God doesn't have for us, it's kind of like spiritual adultery, too. We're being unfaithful to the one we have covenanted ourselves with, and that's the Lord. And covetousness, I mean, is so broad. Sexual immorality, I think primarily men fall into this, primarily. But I think covetousness is a really big, overarching sin that many people, especially in Western cultures, first world cultures like we have, struggle with it immensely. And we don't really like to target that one. It's like, oh, I'm not covetousness. I just like to have a lot of things. I just like to buy a lot of things. I'm just a shopper. And... Uh, when does it become covetousness? When does it become a strong yearning and craving to have something that God says, you don't need it? You don't need it. And when we start entering into that, we get into some scary, scary stuff. Idolatry? That God looks down and says, what are you doing? You're serving and worshiping and craving something that I am not? That's not what I have for you. And you're being unfaithful to me. And I never want to consider myself being unfaithful to the Lord, but I have been. And that needs to die. God wants fidelity as well. And you know that because the biggest, greatest command God ever, ever gave his people was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you really know what that translation means? Love the Lord your God with everything, with everything, with everything, with everything, so that you get it. Don't reserve, don't leave anything back for anyone or anything else. Love God with every ounce of you. Covetousness takes away the love of God. It's the opposite of loving God. It hurts God. And so we can't have any part of it. And then he says this, which is the really scariest thing of the text, which we have to talk about. He says um, in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Do you find that peculiar? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's talking about the wrath of God. If you remember the Colossians, the Colossians is a church, right? It's a church that's been redeemed, saved from their sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, we learn in chapter 1, they're a good church. So they're a church who's been redeemed. And they're a good church who's practicing love for all the saints. Why in the world is Paul bringing up the wrath of God to a good church? Sins like these stated in verse 5, God wants us to know this is why his fury and his wrath is coming. These are the types of things he's here to judge when he comes. We will not get away with sin. He wants us to know that. Whether you're a good church or not, these sins are deadly. These sins are against the plan and the will of God. And when we practice them, God says, that's exactly the opposite of what I want for you, what I have for you. And so he's going to warn a good church called the Colossians to stay away from these sins because this is the exact reason the wrath of God is coming. That's a reason. 
And if you play in those sins, if you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, that entire town was practicing sexual immorality, God's wrath came, didn't it? And if you remember the days of Noah, they were practicing all kinds of evil and wickedness. And guess what happened? The wrath of God came. And the only ones who were saved are the ones who got out. Got out of those things. And the symbolism here is got out of the sins. Got out. Because the wrath of God is coming upon the camps of sexual morality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness. And when it comes, you don't want to be there. Regardless of what you profess, you do not want to be there when the wrath of God comes. And so he's telling the Colossians, which is a good church, you cannot be here when the wrath comes. Because God is not a respecter of persons. He will judge everyone, this is from scripture, with the same measure, which is perfect justice based on our deeds. So if we're saying, listen, I'm a Christian, I got saved, I have a testimony, I have a date in my Bible, but you're practicing sexual immorality, God's going to come back and find you sexually immoral. He's not going to look at your testimony, your date in your Bible. He's going to look at your deeds and go, wait a minute, you're a Christian? You're a Christ follower? These are the things I hate the most. And you're practicing these things? No, that's not going to work on the last day. And I think the worst, most perverse doctrine that's being propagated today is that Christians get away with sin. It's horrible. The devil is telling us today that the world will pay for their sins, but the Christians can stay in it and not have to pay. That's evil, guys. That's devilish. Do you remember that when uh, the angel told Joseph and Mary to call their name, their son's name Jesus? Do you remember why that was? Do you remember what that name means from Matthew 1.21? He said, you will call his name Jesus because he will save their people. Someone finish it. From their sins. Do you notice that? You will call his name Jesus because he will save them from their sins. Not from the punishment only, but from the sins. He will remove them from the sinful camp like Egypt was, and you can walk new and correctly. And we're going to look at a couple other passages that prove this. That if we are living and practicing in sin, practicing sin that God hates regardless of our profession, and I told you a couple weeks ago, our professions can be faked. They can be forged, forgeries. That we can have no assurance that we will avoid God's wrath one day if we're practicing sin. And I want to, I want to mention the word practicing versus committing. I want to be careful with my language. I'm not saying today that you can commit sin. But I am saying today that there's a difference with practicing sin. And you guys would understand that, right? That First John 3 that TGD read talks about practicing sin which is really a theme and a practice of your life. It's something you do. You practice sexual immorality. You practice covetousness. And God wants you to know that that cannot be so for a Christian. Cannot be. It's not a working equation. Here's what I want to say about this text, this verse. We can't afford to be wrong about hell, can we? We can't. As your pastor, I cannot give you any softening language on this because I can't afford for my own soul and for your souls to be wrong about hell. Nobody wants to find on the last day that they got that one wrong. Right? So when the passage says, put them to death because the wrath of God is coming, you need to listen to what he's saying. Because he's trying to save your soul. Still, he's trying to look out for you so that you don't find yourself on the wrong side of God someday. He's also doing this. The promise is also given to us as a benefit and an eternal joy. This is a gift from God. Like when your father, your earthly father, warns you of certain death if you do something, he's actually trying to save your life. And I'll give you an example. When I tell my son, don't run across the busy road to get your ball, Haddon, or I'll spank you. Now, am I being mean to Haddon? No, what I'm actually doing is seeking to save Haddon's life. Because I know that if he chases the ball across the busy road, he may get plowed in by a car or a truck and be dead. And so I give my son very firm language and a very firm discipline if he goes near the road even to say, Haddon, you cannot do this or you will find my discipline because I don't want you dead. And that's what God is saying to us today. You cannot practice these things. Why? I don't want you dead. Remember I sent my son? Do you remember that in John 3, 16 and 17? I didn't send Christ to condemn the world. I sent him to save the world. That should prove something to you today. 
I don't want you dead. Yes, it's God's wrath that is coming, but God is looking out for us so we don't find ourselves in God's wrath. And that's a gift of grace, guys. He didn't have to do that. He could just say, hey, serve me, love me, figure it out. He mentions sins that will kill us so that we know we can't practice those things. And if God didn't love you, he wouldn't warn you. I'm just going to say it that way. But he is warning you, which means he does love you, and he loves me too. He wants our eternal well-being and our joy forevermore and treasures for us that don't spoil or fade. And sin spoils and fades, doesn't it? It only satisfies for a very short time. And Jesus says, no, those are bad treasures. Do you realize you're an eternal soul? I have better things for you. And sin is going to ruin my plan. Therefore, it has to die. It has to. So because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's one clear application for us if we're practicing sins like this. One, repent. Repent of the sin and turn back to Christ. Because this idea in Christianity is there's two paths. Maybe there's one main path and then there's several wrong paths. But there's this idea of two paths, right? You're on the path of Christ or you're not on the path of Christ. And when you're practicing these types of sins, you're not on the path of Christ. You're just not. So either you never were a Christian or you got off a beaten path. Practically, they're the same. Go to Jesus. Get off the sinful path. Repent. Turn around. I did this the other day. I was driving somewhere around Wilkesbury. I'm from Clark Summit, so um, I was trying to get somewhere, and I missed the road or took a wrong thing, and I, I realized I was in a bad part of town. And uh, I had two options at that point. Continue on and just hope I correct myself or call myself lost get off, check my GPS, and get back on the right path. And that's what I decided to do. Because like before, I'm kind of an idiot. So I wasn't going to figure it out on my own. And that's really the idea, is repentance is the key. And Jesus taught us this in Matthew 5. He said, listen, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And the idea there is not about physical mutilation. It's about being severe with sin. Because Jesus says it's better to go to heaven with one eye or one arm than it is to go to hell with all of your limbs. Think about it. So however severe you need to be with your sin, it's worth it because you cannot and I cannot be wrong about hell. You can't gamble with hell and just hope that your testimony is strong enough. Hope that you said the prayer right enough, but you were practicing really bad sins. So we have to repent of those things. We've got to move quickly here, so we're going to. It says after this, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, when you practiced them, which is when you were a sinner. But it says, now you must put them all away. And then he mentions a bunch of other sins. Wrath, anger, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. In these, you too once walked when it made sense for you to do those things, but now it doesn't because you're in Christ. So now you need to put them all away. <laughs> I have a really silly, dumb illustration for you guys, but um, I have five children, so I can tell what children like to do and want to do and practice. And that's okay because they're children. You know, one of my, my baby, Evangeline, um, when she gets something for the first time, guess where the thing goes? Right in the mouth, no matter what it is. As soon as she grabs something, it's like the litmus test. Let's see how this thing tastes. Yeah, that'll tell me how good it is. And then I saw, we took Titus to the doctor the other day, and, you know, when they were checking him out, he had his mouth on the counter. And I was like, oh. And Janine says I'm germaphobe. I don't know if I'm germaphobe. I'm just germaware. You know, and I'm like, oh, Titus, get your mouth off the counter at the doctor's office. Who knows what's on that thing? You know? And so children love to shove anything into their mouth. What if adults were doing that? I mean, this is how dumb my illustration is. What if, you, what if people said, hey, listen, be careful what you give Pastor Todd. It's going right in the mouth, you know? Don't give him your cell phone. Don't give him your pen. It's going right in the mouth. He still does it. Never broke that habit. Or I, I throw a tantrum in the public. Like, I go to the store, and they're out of my favorite soda. Full-blown tantrum, right in the aisle. Pastor Todd, come on, get up. It's okay. They'll have it next week. Do you understand the illustration? When you're a kid, it makes sense that you do kid-like things. But when you're an adult, it doesn't make any sense. And it's weird. And it's bad. 
And so Paul is now saying, listen, when you were sinning, when, excuse me, when you were sinners, it made perfect sense that you practiced sin. You didn't know any better. So you practiced sin and you lived in these really bad sins for the course of your life. And Paul says, wait a minute. Haven't you now been redeemed? Haven't you been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? It doesn't make sense any longer for you to live in these sins. Because you're not a sinner any longer. Guess what you are? A saint. You're a sinner by nature, but when Christ redeems you, he changes your nature so that you don't crave and chase things that you once did. So guess what? It doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense anymore to practice sin and to chase things that are really, really bad and God-hating. So we need to put them all away. I don't know if we'll have time to look at every single one of these, but these are the things he brings up that we've got to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. That's another one. Anger and wrath. There's really no way to bless someone with road rage type anger, is there? (laughs) Hard to really bless someone on the road when you're showing road rage to them. Uh, But that's kind of the idea here is when you're in anger and wrath, you can't practice godliness. Those things are polar opposite. So you've got to put that away. Anger and wrath need to be put away from the Christian as well as malice and slander. Malice is kind of like this really bad premeditated harm, like I'm going to get you harm. Like you did this to me, I'm going to even the score type of thing. And slander is like the abusing of someone's character, which Jesus told us is really bad because it actually does more harm sometimes in some ways than killing their body because a legacy lives beyond the grave, doesn't it? And when you slander someone's character, you're doing something really bad to that person. And Jesus says, I don't want anything like that a part of the Christian. That kind of stuff has to be put to death. Um, I'll give you one more illustration. When I was younger, um, I wasn't bullied a lot in school, but I had my times. You know, I hit my growth spurt somewhere in mid-high school. So before that, I was kind of short and easy to push around. But I had a couple instances where I, I, had, I was bullied. And one time, a guy came up to me, a really big kid. Like, should have been a teacher. He was so big. Um, there's just a couple of those kids. And really big and just, you know, like to push people around. And so one time he came up to me and just kind of did that, just kind of pushed me around, said something mean, pushed push me down. I don't remember exactly what he did. And I had this kind of like, I'm going to get you attitude. And I was really sharp with my tongue back in the day, a really acid tongue. So I knew I could hurt this kid. And as soon as he pushed me, I said something. I don't remember exactly what it was, something about his size or his weight or something like that. And I could tell as soon as I said it, I hurt him. Because I had a really good skill for that back in the day, which is a really bad skill to have. Um, but I noticed I hurt the kid. I hurt him. And I thought I was going to feel good from doing that. Like, yeah, that's what you deserve. I didn't. I didn't feel good. And I realized right away I just did to him what he did to me. That's like malice. That's like anger and hatred. Things that God does not have for the Christian. And it's the opposite of love. It cannot love when we're practicing malice, slander, anger, and wrath. And he also throws in their obscene talk, which basically is making light and making jest of things that God detests. Making jokes, laughing about things that God says, I hate that. Don't joke about that. I hate it. And that's really what obscene talk is. So we need to put those kinds of sins to death. And if we don't be severe with sins like these, they're going to creep up. They're going to take over our garden someday, and they're going to be full of weeds like sexual morality and anger and wrath and malice. And God says, you've got to kill them. As soon as you see them, they've got to be put to death. He says after this, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which we're going to talk about next week, how it, what it's like to put on the new self or the new treasures which is being renewed after the image of its creator. God is making you like God right now. He's making you like a son. So these practices got to go because they deal with falsehood. Falsehood. And he says, don't lie to one another because that's falsehood. And you know who lies? You know who's the father of lies? The devil. And when you're practicing falsehood, you're following the devil. You can't do it. You can't practice falsehood and follow God. Because God is all about truth, right? He told us to speak the truth in love. Um, Janine, when we got married, I realized Janine and I, we have very different backgrounds in certain ways. Um, walkers like to exaggerate and embellish and make stories really grand, even though they might not be true at the end. 
of what really happened. And Janine is a very literal person, very detailed person. So I will say, say things like to somebody when I'm telling a story, yeah, we drove home and we did this. And Janine goes, well, we didn't actually drive home right away. We made a stop on the way. And I'm like, okay, Janine, not really pertinent to the story. but And that's just the kind of person Janine is. And I appreciate it because Janine is very careful to tell the entire truth. And I'm like, oh, just tell the, you know, the big details, leave out those little ones and exaggerate and embellish. You know what? And that's kind of an illustration is we need to be practicing truth, even if it's hard, which is today, this is hard. I'm going to be honest. This is hard to talk about. But it's truth. And it means it's from God. And it means it's for us. And he wants us to know it. And those who speak the most truth to you are the ones who love you the most. And guess who loves you the most then? God. Because he speaks the most truth to you, even when it hurts. Even when you read this and go, ouch, God loves you because he's speaking truth into your soul. The last thing he says is, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And hasn't that been the context and the theme of Colossians? Christ is all and in all. Now there's one measure God has for every single person, regardless of your background or your religion upbringing, one measure in Christ. That's it. You're in Christ, God loves you. God protects you. God watches out for you. God carries you sometimes. And that's basically what he's saying. Listen, it's not about your background any longer. It's not about Israelite versus Philistine. It's not about Greek versus Jew. It's not about certain races. It's about Christ. It's about whether or not you follow my son. And if you follow my son, you're on a very, very good path that leads to eternal life. And if you find out today that you might not be practicing the right things, I have to say this, you're on the wrong path. A path that does not lead to eternal life. You have to get off that path and get on to Christ's path. Either for the first time, like I had to when I was in my mid-20s, or just get back together with him and say, Christ, I've been wrong. I've been practicing the wrong things. These things are things that God hates. I can't do them any longer. Help me kill these things. And he will. That's why he's writing these things. God wants unity within the Christian church based on Christ alone. So the applications, we're going to move very quickly through these. Number one is put a bullseye on your sin. Or sins. Whatever those things are, you've got to mark it. You've got to put it down. You can't just go, oh, yeah, probably, maybe. No, mark it down. Write it down. Tell a friend or something like that and say, this sin is going to die. I'm going to mark it down. I'm going to put a bullseye on it, and I'm not going to stop until it's dead. Because you know what has to happen? We have to take this fight to the devil. We do. The devil is bringing the fight to us. He's like a bully, and we're going to have to take the fight back to him. Because here's the really idea of Scripture that if you either, you're either going to fight the devil or you're going to fight God. Who would you rather fight? God will not lose, ever. The devil, it says if you resist him, he'll flee from you, right? Like a bully. If you stand up to the devil and say, wait a minute, I'm a new creature, I'm a saint. I don't have to do these sins any longer. Yeah, I guess you're right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go find someone weaker then. <laughs> and he'll leave. Because you're fighting with the truth of Christ. But you have to put a bullseye in your sin. You have to mark it down and say, this sin is dying because I'm not going to die. And John Owen said that. I have this quote somewhere in here that I overlooked. But the gist of John Owen's quote is he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So if you knew that sin was going to die or you were going to die, imagine how hard you'd fight. If it was a fight to the death with your sin, don't you think you'd fight? Don't you think you'd wrestle with that sin? I would. I am. There are certain things in my life that I've been putting a bullseye on this week going, ooh, okay, that's still there. Because I can't talk to you today and act like I have this all together. I'm still fighting. So we have to put a bullseye on those sin and say, listen, if this, if this hurts God and hurts me and could possibly kill me, it's going to die. It has to die. So that's number one. Number two, once again, what treasure are you living for? Heavenly, which never fade and spoil or go away? Or earthly, which can kill you? 
Not only do they not satisfy, they can kill you. If we say that we love the Lord and we live for earthly, earthly treasures, we're inconsistent. Or the word of God uses a word called hypocrite. You say this and you live for this? That doesn't work. You say you're a Christ follower and you live in sexual immorality? No, that doesn't work. It doesn't work with covetousness neither or anger or wrath or anything like those. And so here's the, here's the angle I'm going to spin this for all of us today. Remember the, how he started off the sermon with, re, with regrets, things that I wish I could do over if I could? Um, look out for your eternal self today. There's a future version of you who's going to one day really, really hate the fact that you practice these sins, if you practice these sins. Look out for that future person. That future person has to stand before God and give an account of their life. And that's you. That's the thing. It's you. It's not some shadow. It's the reality, your eternal reality. Make good eternal choices today. And lastly, list a sin, which I'm calling earthly treasure, that is stealing from your one true eternal treasure and work on killing that sin. And ask yourself this question at the end. Isn't Jesus worthy? Isn't he enough treasure? Isn't Jesus enough treasure? Do we really have to have the fleeting, momentary sins of the flesh when we have Christ and everything that comes from Christ? The fact of the matter is we're always losing and always gaining treasure. Always. You're either always losing earthly treasures or losing heavenly treasures. Lose earthly, gain heavenly. We're going to talk about next week about how to put on the right things. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Based on everything we learned today, I know we went fast. I'm sorry about that. I know it was a lot to work through. Here's the last thing I'm going to say. Sin should die because we're new. We're new creatures. Sin must die because it's deadly. Sin steals from your future self. Sin hurts the Lord greatly. What will your relationship be with sin going forward? Jesus is the treasure in the field, the pearl of great value, and sin is deadly. And it wants to destroy your treasure and your soul. Think on these things today and may God bless it as we seek to kill the sin that's within. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your help. Um, I thank you for the word of God that is a double-edged sword and it pierces through our ligaments and our hearts and our minds. And I thank you for the word of God that has taught us today how deadly sin is. And I know we know that, but Father, we need to be practicing the right kinds of things and sin is here to kill us. And I pray that you'd show us that today. Reveal to us how precious Jesus is and how good it is to follow him and how good it is to kill the sin that hurts God and hurts Christ. Thank you for the people here. Bring us all to a better place, Father. Sanctify and beautify us one day so we can meet the Lord Jesus Christ and be exactly what he deserves as his church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.